0: All right, well, um, this is Palm Sunday, and as I say from time to time, we don't follow the church calendar uh, very rigorously, but we want to be aware of the fact that people all over the world are really giving particular attention this week to what we call the Passion Week, and uh, Jesus entering Jerusalem, His final teaching, His final suffering, leading to ultimate suffering, the crucifixion and then uh, the resurrection that we'll celebrate next week. So I want to look at a classic passage about his, his entry. When we say the triumphal entry, most of you have heard that term. That's just kind of a, 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 a commonly used Christian term for Jesus riding into the city of Jerusalem at the beginning of what we call Holy Week or Passion Week. So we're going to look at Matthew 21, and then I, I do want to look at a few other verses in Luke since gospel writers pick up on different details about this account. So Matthew 21 and, uh, and Luke 19. Now, I've only been to Pittsburgh one time, and, and we've had some people here who have lived in Pittsburgh and very fond of Pittsburgh. I've only been once. I was up there for a meeting. It was actually our denomination's big once-a-year general assembly, and this was years ago. So I um, had a rental car to come into the city, and somebody had told me ahead of time when you come into the city of Pittsburgh, you're going to go through this tunnel. And then when you get on the other side of that tunnel, you won't have to wonder where you are. So I got to this, this, I came up on this big fort Pitt tunnel. If you've ever been there, can't miss it. Um, you, ba- you basically go through a, a mountain and, uh, not the longest tunnel I've ever been through, but pretty long. And uh, so may, I don't know, a minute and a half, two minutes. And I, if you've never seen this before, I envy you For if you ever get to do this, is when you come out of Fort Pitt Tunnel, no one has to tell you where to look. It is just the most beautiful panoramic view of downtown Pittsburgh. It just opens up in front of you. you to say that you can't miss it is an understatement. The New York Times said it may be the best way uh, to enter an American city is, is uh, when you come out of that tunnel. It's like even better than when you come in 385 and see our jail uh, before you come into... It's like even better than that. Um, I've tried not to be obnoxious, referring back to getting to to visit Israel recently, but, but give me a pass on this morning. Two and a half weeks ago, for the first time in my life, I got to stand on the Mount of Olives. And... I grew up in church. I grew up hearing about the Mount of Olives. I don't know. I I can't recall what my mental picture of what it looked like. There's olive trees there, and it's, I guess, tilted. But but what, what, what you're seeing, to stand on the Mount of Olives is no one has to tell you what you're looking at. I mean, you can either turn around and just look at the hillside, and now it's urban, but there used to be more olive trees there. But if you turn around, the obvious view, the panoramic view from the Mount of Olives is Jerusalem. And Jerusalem's a lot larger now than it it used to be, but what we call the old city, that was was Jerusalem in Jesus' day. Uh, That's the context of this passage. This is uh, Jesus. He's given instructions to his disciples. We're going to read about these logistics that he tells them to cover, and And they're they're on the Mount of Olives, and then you would go down to the Kidron Valley. Don't picture a huge, gigantic, you know, Norwegian valley, just almost like a small ravine. And then you'd make your way up to the east side of the city of Jerusalem. If this passage is going to make sense, there's one thing you need to know about Jerusalem, and it's what the name means. Do you know what Jerusalem means? The New Testament actually tells you. Because most of us don't speak Hebrew. Uh, Jerusalem means the city of peace. Jerusalem. Shalom. The city of peace. Matthew 21. And now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did As Jesus had directed them, they brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! From Luke 19. And when he drew near And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. This is God's word. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, that you allow us and you enable us and you welcome us to do what we're doing right now to to know you, and to worship you, to relate to you. And just even as Michael and Jen were talking about, the, the, the great thing is to, is to know you and to relate to you. It's not to go to church or go to another country. It's, it is to know you. So, great Father, please help us know you. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, I looked up the history of Valentine's Day and it's, it was a lot more complicated than I, than I thought it would be. And there's a, in fact, there's not consensus about actually how some of, how we celebrate it happened. The more recent history is more established. But, you know, there was a, there was a Christian named Valentine or Val, Valentinus or Tinus. And uh, in fact, there may have been two by that name but, but one, according to tradition, he, uh, among the other things he did, he would go and take food to persecuted Christians. like, or, And if I understand it correctly, even take food to people who were being held for martyrdom. They're going to be killed. Just a very loving man. And so somehow that, that saint, St. Valentine, was associated with love. And however it happened over time, he, he just as a figure became identified with all kinds of love and especially romantic love, and you get to the time of Shakespeare, and and actually before him, Chaucer, remember these guys from school, in some of their writings, you have romantic love tied to St. Valentine's Day, a a, a day on the church calendar. So then that was already kind of in motion, and then by, I guess by the 1800s, Valentine's Day was almost exclusively tied in to romantic love. And then the whole industry you know, revolved around that. And then, uh, so Valentine's Day is when you give something to your significant other to the point where now to give a card to your interest or to give like horrible chalk candy to your interest or chocolate or whatever, we actually now call the card or the candy a valentine. A lot had to happen to get from A to to Z. But now the thing that's so far removed from the original meaning has come to take on the same name. As the origin. Uh, There's a word in this passage, and I really want you to know what this means. And it's the word Hosanna. And that's a that's a transliteration of, of, of Hebrew. And literally it would mean something like save now. Very urgent, very desperate. And it's directed to God. Save now, or save please, Hosanna. And that, that became a cry of God's people. It appears in the Psalms. We'll talk about that in a second. The crowd is quoting a psalm when they say Hosanna. But uh, over time, that, that word got linked in with one of the Jewish feasts. You know, there were, there were fall feasts that God required of the Jewish people. And one of those was called the Feast of Booths. And um, do some of you like to camp? Do some of you like to camp? Okay, I, I've, I've learned that lesson, but that's another sermon illustration. Uh, there, I, I, if you liked to camp, you would have loved the Feast of Booths. Because at the Feast of Booths, you went to Jerusalem, there was more sacrifice that, that week than any other week of the Israelite year. And as a way of remembering their, their journeys in the wilderness, you would take leaves and branches and stuff and you would form like your own little, almost like we would say, you know, shelter or tent, but a, a booth. And you would live in it. And, and it became a very celebratory time. And so, and the place to do it was Jerusalem. So you can imagine the numbers of people that came in. Well, this is a way to make a buck. And uh, so people figured out, all right, well, you, you know, folks are traveling from a long way in. They're not going to bring their own building supplies. So, you know, have branches and sticks and palm branches. You know, that's great for cover, make, if you're going to make a booth. Palm branches, and they're, they're local. Have those and have them ready to, to, uh, to sell. And so somehow over time... That became so built into the Israelite year, the Jewish year and tradition, they might feel that the way we do about like Christmas or Thanksgiving, seeing people. But over time, palm branches actually became known as hosannas. Uh, the the. the, the that celebration of, of being rescued by God when they were desperate. They're in the wilderness. We, we have no place to live of our own. We, one of these days in the promised land, we're going to have our own home. Coming to Jerusalem and celebrating the Feast of Booths, the word Hosanna got built into that celebration. It just got in the, the DNA of that feast to the point where people would call palm branches Hosannas. And I, and I want you to hang on to that, okay? Because it started out as a very desperate plea. Like, God, we can't save ourselves. Save us now. Save us, please. That's what Hosanna is supposed to mean. And it became kind of a happy way of saying, we're together and God is great. Hosanna. So I want to think about this. I want to think about what, what, what's the Hosanna that comes naturally to us or, or let's put it this way, what's the hosanna we want that we naturally say, and then what's the hosanna we need? The hosanna that we, we want and then the hosanna we need. So just looking at these texts, what's the hosanna naturally that we want? Uh, this passage in Matthew starts out, it's interesting, you're very close to Jerusalem, you're just, you just almost are in the gates. And uh, Mount of Olives. And you get these logistics about Jesus telling disciples to pick up a donkey in a very specific way. And you'll say this, and he'll say this, and you'll say that. And like, why? okay, why is there all this attention about pick up the donkey, and we got to do it this particular way? And Matthew tells you. And this is important because, you know, the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, were sort of written with, with different target audiences. Do you know what the target audience is for Matthew. It's a Jewish audience. Lots of quotes from what we call the Old Testament to say, look at what was said back then and look at how it's being fulfilled. Now, look how Matthew does that right here. You know, pick up the donkeys, do it this way, this guy will meet you. Verse 4, this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet saying, now he's, he's quoting the prophet Zechariah. Say to the daughter of Zion... Now, that's the mount one over from the temple mount in Jerusalem. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. So, So what is Matthew saying? For any reader, but especially for his Jewish readers, this isn't just a little logistical detail that I felt like telling you about something was happening here. The anticipated king of Jerusalem is entering the city, not just like we, not just that that's happening, but he's coming in exactly like the prophet said he would come in. And here, here's the thing you've got to picture. Don't picture a big American donkey that's like the size of a horse. This, this would be especially the foal of a donkey. This would be something that for a grown man sitting on it, he'd probably have to lift his heels up to keep him off the ground. So just the opposite of the conquering Roman, you know, leader, general, coming into the city, humble, servant, gentle. But prophecy is being fulfilled. Messiah prophecy is being fulfilled. The king of Jerusalem is the Messiah because the monarchy fell apart. But look at this. Look in verses 8 and 9. It says that uh, most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road. Others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Now, it's not the Feast of Booths this week. It's another gathering, and there's a lot of people in Jerusalem. What is the gathering this week? Passover. Tons of people either in or heading to Jerusalem this week. But people sort of reverted to Feast of Booth's behavior. Celebration, gathering. Verse 9, the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting. They're quoting from Psalm 118. Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Now, when they quote that psalm, they added something. What did they add? Because it's not in Psalm 118. They, They added, Hosanna to the son of David. That's Messiah language. And there are a bunch of people uh, in Jerusalem and in Judea at this time descended from David. Lots of people. David had lots of wives and lots of children and lots of descendants. But, But when they say the son of David, they mean King Messiah, King of Jerusalem. Uh... He's riding in to the city of peace and there's tons of celebration and there's tons of happiness and there seems to be tons of delight in owning him as king. It's almost like the Sir Walter Raleigh thing who put his cloak in there so the woman wouldn't step in the puddle. They're putting their cloaks on the ground for him to to ride on top of. Uh, For those people, what do you think they understood would bring them peace? Peace. Like, if Jesus is riding in and he's going to bring shalom, what would that mean for them? And that's a pretty easy one to answer. He was going to, he was going to essentially destroy Rome. The anticipation in Jesus' day was that the number one thing on the to-do list for the Messiah is to come back to the place where God's name dwells, Jerusalem, and come in and face the enemies of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I'll tell you, it must have been awful to be a Jew living in the place where Jews are supposed to live and to be controlled and oppressed by a pagan government. Roman soldiers were as violent as you've heard. And uh, uh, they, they were not trying to make you feel good about uh, morality and keeping Torah. they let you do enough of what you were going to do so there wouldn't be an uprising. But it's a pagan government oppressing you. Number one thing on the, on the Messiah's to-do list was to come in and conquer Rome and run them out. And so the anticipation is people are taking cloaks off and throwing them on the ground and they're cutting branches down and they're putting them down and adults and children are waving palm branches and saying, Hosanna, the number one anticipation is he's going to go in and he's going to do that and when he does that, we are going to have shalom. Now, we know how the story turns out, but I, I want to connect the dots and ask you, if Jesus... This is where you've got to try to be honest with yourself. If Jesus were to come in and bring you shalom right now, what would He do? Can you be honest? Like, if, if Jesus were to come in and really usher shalom into my life, peace, wholeness, human flourishing, what would that look like? What would it look like? I think if a lot of us were honest, we would say... I just want to feel better. I'm so sad about this situation in my family. I'm so sad about my marriage. I'm so sad about that I want to be married and I'm not. Um, I'm so sad about work. I'm so down about work. I'm so down about not working. I just, I just want to feel better. And it's interesting because, you know, for most people in the room, we've, we've been taught, Jesus came to do this big cosmic thing. But I think if we were honest, we would say, if Jesus really gave me shalom right now, the big thing he would do would be to just give me what I want and make me feel better. He's got the power to do it, so I really wish he would. And if he did... Boy, I'd lift my palm branch Boy, if I felt better. If, if, that thing, if that unresolved thing got resolved because Jesus resolved it, I'd lift my palm branch. That's the hosanna that comes naturally to us. And what I want to think about is the hosanna that we need. Jesus wept, you know, more than once in the Gospels, but he wept as he rides up to Jerusalem. Why is he weeping? Well, a couple of reasons. He knows his Bible. He is God. But in his humanity, he knows his Bible. And he knows that that city is like no other city. Uh, going all the way back to the books of Moses, the law of God, before they knew where Jerusalem, uh, that Jerusalem would be the place, God said, there's going to be this place where I cause my name to dwell. And it will be like no other place. And boy, that that is the place. That is the home of the temple, which is the home of God. That's the place where the holy of holies is. There is no other real estate like that real estate. The Psalms say it's the most beautiful place on earth. It's the joy of all the earth. It's Jerusalem. And Jesus knows that. And Jesus knows that that is the place where the prophets go. Prophets went to other places too, but that's where the prophets keep being sent by God. God saying, "Turn to me." Turn to me. That's where the priesthood does its thing. They don't have little other little operations going on. That's where the priesthood does its thing. That's where the kings ruled till it fell apart. But that is the joy of all the earth. That is the place Of all places on earth where people should say, God, if you're sending someone to rescue us, if you're sending someone to bless us, if you're sending someone to show us who you are and to bring us to you, whatever other city won't opens its doors, we will fling open our gates. And it's the opposite. Uh, He also knows, because Jesus is a prophet, that... um, Something terrible is going to happen. You know, when, I, when we were in Israel, the, the, line, the line of demarcation that I kept hearing in dates about when something happened, historic context, it wasn't before Jesus or after Jesus the way Christians tend to think of it. The, the way I kept hearing it explained was before 70 A.D. or after 70 A.D. What happened in 70 A.D.? Rome crushed Jerusalem and destroyed the temple, which would have been thought impossible. That, that would be equivalent to the end of earth. And they did it. And Jesus knows that's coming. Jesus actually really is the prophet. And it's as if he can see it happening. He's surrounded by people doing this and celebrating and saying, You're awesome. And he can see it and it breaks his heart. That the consequences of sin and rebellion are going to hit you to a degree that you don't understand. So what does he do? He's not in yet. This is the city that rebels against God. This is the city that's going to be destroyed. What does he do? One of the most amazing things that I have seen in recent years as far as Christians being Christians in South Carolina, one of the most amazing things I can think of is the response of some of the relatives of victims murdered by Dylan Roof in Charleston. Do you remember that? Do you remember when the relatives of some of the slain spoke to him guess that's his, uh, would that be his arraignment? I don't know the terminology, his arraignment. But at least one relative evangelized him. I mean, didn't just speak graciously, but said, if you would believe in Jesus, he would accept you, and you'd be okay. I, I I mean, I, I got to tell you, I almost can't talk about that. But, like, I don't know how vengeful my heart would be at that point. And this person's not only being kind and measured, but going to bat for him. That's love. Jesus is looking at the city that has pushed back against him, as well as all the predecessors of prophets, priests, and kings. And it's going to be punished. So what does he do? He Rides toward it. And he enters it. He doesn't go away from it. He enters it. Because it is Jerusalem. And they don't understand the peace that this earth actually needs. They don't understand the peace that they actually need. And how he's the only one who can achieve it. What is the peace that we really need? You know, something that we say as a church, I say this when I teach the Foundations class, is that uh, we have roots. We, we grow from our roots. We grow from our historic and our theological roots. May I quote from our roots? Our Presbyterian Catechism asked the question about, I'm, I'm going to paraphrase because it was written in the 1640s, how bad is the bad news? If the gospel is good news, how bad is the bad news? And this group of ministers give this answer, all mankind by their fall lost communion with God, are under his wrath and curse, and so made liable to all miseries in this life, to death itself, and to the pains of hell forever. When when you think about what's my problem? Or what's Greenville's problem? Or what's the world's problem? Or if you're a parent, what, what, what's my kid's problem? It's so easy to point the finger at things that are secondary and tertiary and downstream. Jesus always understood what was primary. You, you know what the ultimate bad news is? You know what the problem is? Is that we are not right with God, and we cannot dig our way out, and we cannot fix it, and God is holy. And so he rides in to face a foe that's so much worse than Rome. And boy, he felt Rome. When you're scourged by Romans and punched by Romans and hit in the head with a reed by Romans and slapped by Romans and crucified by Romans, you have felt the Romans. But he falls under something worse. He falls under what we deserve. You could say that when he rode into Jerusalem... He can't say, save us. He can't say, Hosanna. He he can only say, well, he chooses to say, save them by cursing me. And he rides in. And he is. He falls under the curse. He falls under the punishment that we deserve. All the Roman torture, but he falls under the very justice of God and he conquers sin and death and rises from the grave and ascends into heaven. And when he sends the Holy Spirit to be poured out to change the earth, and the Holy Spirit is a person, he's not like a force field, but guess where the Holy Spirit lands? Jerusalem. It's awesome. Jesus sends him to Jerusalem. Uh, Have you been saved? Yeah, I don't ever want to get tired of asking that question. And I don't want to ask that question like I don't think anybody here is saved. But are you saved? Not Jesus saved me from the job I don't like, or Jesus saved me from the husband I don't like, or Jesus saved me from the financial level I don't like, but Jesus saved me from the worst news. Because here's the thing, when he overcame sin and death, he assured with his, death and life, his life and death and resurrection that one of these days there's going to be the great resurrection. And you know what? He's going to take care of all that other stuff. Let me end with this. I, I just said this to Jonathan this morning. You know, I, I, I forgot something until this morning, and I think it was the Lord that must have reminded me so I could say it to you. In the last book of the Bible, Revelation, it says there's all these millions of people, and they're gathered around the throne of God, and they're praising God. And they're saying, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever. And it says they're holding something. Do you know what they're holding? Palm branches. And call me corny, but I don't want to be less corny than Revelation, and it's not corny. To believe in Christ is to believe that, you know what, there's, I'm going to die with a lot of questions unanswered about why my life unfolded the way it is. But if my hope is in Jesus, the end of this story is I'm lifting my hosanna saying you fixed everything and that is the hosanna we need amen let's pray together our father we don't want to diminish that there's real pain in this room there's grief over lost loved ones there's disappointment with work there's Marriage strife, there's infertility, there's depression, there's addiction, there's family situations that just don't resolve, there's loneliness. There's so much that we want to see changed and made new. Lord Jesus, we lift our palm branch to you and we say, Hosanna, that you wrote in that all things might be made new. And we praise you in your name. Amen.